Coming up on Life is a Festival. If there is a single high-potency psychoactive tool for expanding your personal responsibility, your situational awareness, right, and your ability to serve, I, and I can say this from like two decades of like checking this, so this is not like hyperbole, um, I would say sign up and take a wilderness first responder that is nine days long, and it's served from the Wilderness Medicine Institute and Knowles National Outdoor Leadership School. Um, and it will, you will be a different human being. You will be more different, better, and more useful than if you had gone to a nine-day Vipassana retreat or spent a week in the jungle. My name is Eamon Armstrong, and this is Life is a Festival. This podcast is a celebration of thinkers and leaders who live their lives with the open-hearted, experimental joy of a festival. Each week, we converse in complete openness, in an ongoing quest to find those boundaries in our being and melt them into lofty horizons. Life is a festival, only to the wise. Welcome to Life is a Festival. I have some exciting news. I have started a Facebook group for fans of the show. That is Life is a Festival in the groups section of Facebook, where you can connect with me, with each other, with the guests from the show, and talk about what we're all here learning to make our lives more like a festival, and hopefully more enlightened and more connected and more fabulous and adventurous. Today on the show, I have Jamie Wheel. Jamie Wheel is the executive director of the Flow Genome Project and co-authored the book Stealing Fire with Stephen Kotler in 2017. And at the time of that book, he talked about some concerns with the psychedelic renaissance, he talked about commercialism or militarization, militarization of psychedelics. But something he barely scratched but has become a bigger deal to him now is this idea of narcissistic hedonism. In fact, Jamie Wheel is somewhat of a Paul Revere of this hedonism in the psychedelic renaissance. On the podcast today, we go deep into what to do about Instagram culture and extractive tourism, and he gives us some tangible tools with which to become a homegrown human. Some of the things we talk about, some great advice from Jamie, how to get in a flow state and then do service for your community. He invites us to train physically in something we are absolutely disinclined to do. And one of the big things we talk about is this wilderness medical training, and that's a 10-day immersive first responder course. And Jamie, thanks to you, I am going to do the wilderness training. I'm going to do a 10-day immersive training because of this podcast, and I'm excited to do a podcast about that training and tell y'all about how to take care of emergency situations, and that's really exciting. Also a little scary. Immersions usually are. This is a wide-ranging episode. It goes for two hours, and um, you might you might end up listening to it more than once because Jamie is a brilliant man. So without further ado, I'm honored to offer you Jamie Wheel. Hi, Jamie. Thanks hey. for coming to my house. Yeah, man. Glad to be here. Um, it's one of those really nice days where it's just rained, and then the sun's just come out, and it feels very crisp. It's really yeah. nice. Um, 
we were talking a little bit before, and you're such a fascinating thinker. I had to stop you <laughs> so that we could actually have a podcast conversation. And um, I just want to start by asking you, um, you've spent this time coming to my house last minute to do this podcast. What for you would be a home run? considering that my audience are burners, festival goers, world travelers, and people who really do care about um, the state of the world and who are also finding their own way. So considering that audience and this time with me, what would be a home run podcast for you? Yeah, I mean, I guess, um, you know, I'll have to kind of set this up for a sec to, to then deliver what the resolve might be. Um, which is, you know, having written Stealing Fire, which, you know, a couple of years ago, which was sort of saying, hey, it feels like there's this groundswell. It feels like there's this global revolution towards making use of ecstasis or non-ordinary states to forge culture and forge the way forward for all of us, right, globally. Um, and even in focusing on Burning Man, we weren't focusing on necessarily so much the art and the, you know, sound camps and that kind of thing. We were focusing on burners without borders and we were focusing on resiliency that, that you know, basically this is a, this is a training ground, a joyful, delightful training ground slash baptism into future proofing humanity. Right. And, and, you know, so thinking about like the beer for data project in Afghanistan or the Katrina relief or any of those things, that idea of like, Hey, we're out here in this crazy ass desert. It's super hard, right? We have to bond together. And Oh, by the way, we have this, you know, secret weapon, which is the chance to be reborn ourselves and to reconnect to our humanity together. So that was, you know, that was and is um, my kind of last great hope for how we navigate the next century. Um, and since and as that book has come out, I've become increasingly concerned with how it's playing out. Um, because in the book, I said, hey, there's three, there's three pitfalls. There's things we've got to watch out for because this has never been stable, like peak states, ecstasis, throughout all of human history has always been the volatile, the controversial, the unstable left-hand path. It's a, very, it's a radioactive element, and it very rarely stays still for long enough to build things that are enduring. And said so that the three challenges would be weaponization, Right, the idea of co-opting this for nation-state or non-state actors, right, looking to point it towards other ends. Uh, commodification, just the ability to hijack our pleasure circuitry and reward circuitry to sell us more shit. And of course, both of those are already happening in spades. And then I felt like sort of went back and kind of just like, just to be thorough, said and sort of hedonization, like, hey guys, be careful we don't sort of end up drooling and gawping and forgetting what we came for. You know, be sure we don't, you know, seek out, start out seeking the Grail Castle and end up trapped in the Hotel California, right? Mm -hmm. And so in service of this conversation, I would propose that, um, it, I always think of it like, it's like those little mazes that they'd give you on the back of the placemats, you know, in the, in the diners when you were kids to keep you busy with the crayon. And, you know, What's the number one rule of the maze is that the, the most, the straightest route to get to the gate at the end is never the one. And it feels to me that like burner culture at large, and this is, you know, a broad generalization and not true for all folks and all sub sub communities within it. But statistically and in general, it feels to me like burner culture is right there within, within spitting distance of the garden gate 
but it's in a cul-de-sac. It's in a walled-off place. And, and so for people who haven't had exposure to psychedelics, to open sexuality, to creative exploratory ritual and art, they might look and see the Leather and Feather crew and be like, oh my God, those guys are woke as fuck. They are right. They, in fact, they are there. Maybe, maybe, maybe from here, I can't even tell whether they are fully realized or not. It sure looks that way, right? They have all the signs and signifiers, all the trappings. But my sense is, is it's a goddamn cul-de-sac and they're encased in a plexiglass sort of phone booth right there within reach of the thing we need and unable to ever touch it. It's like Tantalus in the Greek myths, you know, <laughs> like forever reaching down, it's like dying of thirst, reaching down to the water and the water is always receding. And so if we could do anything today, it would be how do we take down that plexiglass wall and how do we take out our eraser and erase one of the, you know, the barriers between this community and actually stepping through that gate and taking both the, you know, our birthright and our responsibility seriously. This is so timely in my own life because what you are describing for me is exactly where I see myself in that cul-de-sac. Um, I used to run a website called Fest 300. Uh-huh. With Chip. With yeah? Chip, yeah. yeah. Um, and I love Chip dearly. Um, shout out to Chip. Chip gets shout out, shouted out a lot on this podcast. Always, so much man. respect for him. What a good soul. Um, what I believed when we were doing Fest 300 was that festival culture was a kind of funnel and that you would start at Coachella or EDC or something and you'd start to move through transformational culture and eventually you'd end up at Burning Man and it was a kind of funnel of realization and through psychedelics and peak experiences and uh, you, would, you would get kind of turned on to the idea that there was another way of living and that there was this sort of um, inexorable uh, march forward of progress through festival culture. And while I was working on that project, I really believed that very deeply. And that's part of what fueled the project is, can we instill these values in festival culture um, so that people get closer to what Burning Man is at its best? What I found, and I haven't been doing that, Fast 300 is now gone. Um, it was acquired by another company and it's kind of shifted. I found in myself this um, this kind of groundhog day of leaping from peak to peak, of having the ayahuasca experience and feeling like I learned the thing, trying to integrate it, finding myself back in the same place that I was, and then going for the Vipassana and then feeling like I had it and then kind of receding and going on this journey of personal healing through festivals, through ceremony, through travel that was ultimately really focused on myself. And while I think I did grow and heal in certain ways, and I think I have some insights, I actually don't know where to go next. And the clock really feels like it's ticking. Mm. And people, especially who have had the privilege to have these transformational experiences, need to get to work. And I'm embarrassed to say I don't exactly know how. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that is a pernicious, uh, a pernicious problem. Uh, it's not really that different, just on the most accessible level to most people, from cannabis use and dependency. It's like, hey, you know, cannabis interacts with our endocannabinoid system. It releases anandamide. It makes us feel awesome, right? And it does it so easily and so readily that, you know, I can I have two choices there. I can either use it and go, oh my gosh, this is what I feel like, open-hearted, 
able to make lateral connections, interesting thinking, heightened attunement and sensory awareness, right? And then live into that. And that might include meditation and that might include body work and physical training. That might include attention to my diet. Or I could just go back and hit that fucking bong again and take another ripper. And so as long as our pathways are unconstrained and there is a low friction, easily accessed way to ring the bell at the top of the stack, then the drivers, which most culture has always encoded, you know, this, then this, then this, there's progressions, there's rate limiters, there's sets of lineage, there's approvals, right? Before you get to run through all of, all of the tools, as long as we have um, excessively, basically, I mean, I think it's um, Kyle Jung, right? Beware of unearned wisdom. And so we have access to, you know, the the entire wisdom traditions and all of the ecstatic technologies of human history, all gathered from around the world, all available in everybody's goodie drawer or medicine cabinet. And we've never had that before. And so what do we do with the open-ended responsibility and chaos of that and how do we actually make that connection i mean the bottom line is we just all need to grow the fuck up and 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 stop spending so much time chasing the fairy lights uh, and realize that the hard thing is is ultimately the only thing i want to make a distinction because for me I've made the transition from peak to integration. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm integrating, I'm paying mm-hmm. attention to my diet, I'm meditating every day, but mm-hmm. the focus is still on myself. Yeah. And um, something that we were both at Daniel Schmachtenberger um, and Andrew Hewitt's talk at uh-huh. um, Planet Home this weekend. And one of the things that he was talking about um, in that talk and then later privately was about healing yourself and healing what stands between you and your dharma. Um, healing is a process of clearing what stands between you and your dharma. Mm-hmm. And my fear is not, it's not just that I'm going and hitting the bong, but that I'm, I'm in a loop where I'm doing the work, but the work is so focused on me. Yeah, sure. Um, and I see it around me in, in many of the people that I interact with, um, that, that we're kind of nudging our way into helping the world. Like I have this podcast, I'm trying to reach people and, yeah. you know, there's little ways that we're doing it, but it doesn't seem like we are all hands on deck in the way the world needs right now even though we're doing our healing mm-hmm. and that there's kind of a loop in this healing journey. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I noticed that, I mean, you know, and I, I fully own, I may have been projecting onto the situation, but what I, what I felt in that conversation that Andrew was laying out where he's like, Hey, here's all the things, here's money, economics, politics, power, environment. Here's all the challenges and kind of laying out the map one by one. And then there was the hole in the middle. There was the shape of a triangle. And it was like, but you know, and I you could sort of feel people getting a little, you know, bummed out, stressed out. Like this is a pretty dire situational analysis. And then he's like, ah, but the thing that's missing you know, the thing that's missing from game A or kind of free market democratic capitalism as we're experiencing it that's going off a cliff, the thing that's missing is self. And you could literally feel everybody go, ah, thank God. That means we fucking get to keep our costumes and our polyamory and our psychedelics because, yeah, there it is. That's us right there in the middle. Yeah. And that feels weird to me. That feels like that's not, <laughs> I, I've been thinking that way for a long time, but yeah. it doesn't, I don't, I did Vipassana. I did like mm-hmm. a yin yoga thing. I, I sat with the Bwiti in Gabon to do mm-hmm. Iboga. I did all the things. And here did the I things. am. Yeah. And I still feel like I'm not making a difference in the world in the way that I need to be doing 
Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of people share that experience. Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, I, I think that the answers are just ridiculously simple, and and so simple that they will be almost forgettable or irritating, which is just you know, at some point, roll up our sleeves, put a stake in the ground, and put our life effort into making a positive dent. And that's slow and simple. And that's and that start in a dyad, start in a relationship, loving another. Um, and, and I mean, in specific, like a romantic psychosexual partnership in the sense that if, you, if we can't do it in a pair where you have all of the neurochemistry and all of the positive affect and all of the positive emotions and also also the potency right of just that priming and reinforcing meaning it's it's resilient and anti-fragile more so than any other potential relationship we can have because evolution stacked the deck to make sure we have those relationships right so if we can't leverage millions of years of evolutionary imprinting to the advantage of creating an abiding pair bond we're fucked do not pass go do not go any further the idea of like hey we dropped acid at burning man and we camped together and we're like soul brothers or sisters for life let's go start a company like that's actually an incredibly weak bond it's superficially profound and then you get six months later and you're late on your raise or who's going to make payroll or differences in ip or direction of the company and it's like fuck you and the horse you rode in on so like step one is like practice loving another deeply committedly right and actually let the pressure and the freedom of no escape right happen and then you know natural outcome raise children well natural outcome like dig in the dirt natural outcome serve those less fortunate like, like build, you know, and it can be make art, it can be build things, it can be grow things, it can be love and train and raise others. Like, it's the human stuff. And, and I mean, I'd, I'd for sure default to Alice Walker. You know, Temple of My Familiar is a gorgeous book if anybody hasn't read that. But just like, what does it mean to just be a roots-ass human? And like, forget, like, I'm a social alchemist or I'm a chief experience officer or some bullshit thing you put on your LinkedIn profile. Like, think about what are the roles that humanity have always taken on. There are warriors, there are mothers, there are mages, there are healers, there are farmers, there are hunters, right? What are we? And, and get really clear on what is our timeless role. And back to the Dharma, like, because we are just at the smorgasbord of peak experience, we're greedy and we're wasteful with what we're sampling. And, and as a result, we're constantly creating additional chains of cause and effect. So we're basically amplifying our karma to the point where it's so noisy and so dramatic and also so cathartic, right? Oh, I have, I have a, I'm in a polypod with six people and, we've, and it all went fucking, it was awesome and amazing and we were like on the honeymoon high for six weeks and then it was a stark raving shit show for six months and we've had these council sessions and weepy gatherings and breakups and makeups and shakeups and you're like, oh, you're in the Hotel California. You're not doing a goddamn thing. You, you might say you're doing Tantra. You're doing the exact opposite. Like, Tantra, and it, sometimes it's sexual, sometimes it's not, but Tantra is just the act of embracing all that arises in service of burning through karma to get to the still point of awareness. And if you're constantly making 10x more cause and effect ripples than you are distilling, you're actually you're, you're doing anti-Tantra and you will never get to your Dharma. You will never get to, oh my God, this is what I must do, even if it kills me. 
and 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 so my sense is is that and I was talking with with, with our mutual friend Jason Silva about this because you know he he he's a philosopher of the mind he spends tons of his time mulling existence right and I was like dude like there actually isn't the answer that you're seeking isn't in more thinking it's in embodiment it's in additional doing and we were at the beach so we were like watching some hang gliders and we were talking about surfing and things like that and I was like you know go do things that are bigger than you go do things that are harder than you go do things that basically can call bullshit on what you think what are some examples of that well i mean you can go either direction right like a buddy of ours is doing profound like meditation work in san quentin right now um, and Jesse Estrin is his name, and, the, and, and it's part of a project that's decades long, working in that prison with men who have, you know, who are there from violence and trauma in their life, and they're and there's it's just slow, steady, patient work of connecting and sharing these experiences. For me, um, action sports are profoundly functional because the you know you you face Kali in the big mountains, in the big ocean, like it falsifies your bullshit. I, th- I mean, and a buddy of ours, Jesse Richmond, who's a world champ kiteboarder, Red Bull athlete. He's like, yeah, I'll tell you. He goes, I'll tell you, man, separates the men from the boys. When you're out at Jaws off the coast of Maui, where he grew up, and there's a closeout set coming, you know, because we're all in the water and we're about to get, you know, a hundred tons of water come down on us. And we're going to about to be in the washing machine for, you know, minutes fight, flight, survival. And he goes, and you can tell the dude who was posturing on the beach, you know, who's the Instagram pro versus who's the fucking waterman. Cause he's like, woohoo, here we go. Right. And the other dude's white as a sheet cause he's about to be called out on his game. And so, you know, we accidentally came up through, like, if I look back on our life and what, what essentially did we accidentally get initiated into our life, we... Mine, mine and Julie's my, okay. my life partner. So we met when we were 18 in college and we... Julie is here, by the way. Yeah. Thank you. For, <laughs> she's, she's here. She's she's the first audience of this podcast. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, it's It's been, you know, music, mountains, mushrooms, and marriage. And, and that idea of like live music slash communitas, which for us was tag into the Grateful Dead scene fish when they were just getting started string cheese incident you know when we were living in colorado like but those times of like psychedelically informed exploratory music that gets a community into the present moment and and it seems there's a there's a lot of people who are in that kind of stage of approaching psychedelics and that stage Uh there's something i think that's a little bit more innocent about that stage versus the kind of posturing woke uh Burning Man kind of vibe that some of us have found our way into. Sure. Although, although I think it's really important to distinguish between the ecstatic technology we're discussing, like a dead show or a festival or the burn and the full spectrum of humans that show up. Because I couldn't sort myself out from that either. Like first experiences at a dead show. I mean, I'm, I'm an antisocial repressed English boy at heart. Right. And, and my, our first experiences psychedelics were like a handful of people we really loved and trusted in beautiful natural locations oceans mountains natural hot springs like just god's country you know no social no no super ego no socially constructed identity just stripped down to our humanity in raw beauty 
That sounds so nice. So I, I can't like we did not plan this, but when I look backwards, I'm like, oh my gosh, how fortunate were we? And also how and and, and how many hidden success factors were baked into this? Because so for instance, like yeah, like way before van life, we had a '76 Corvette Yellow Westphalia uh, VW camper. We'd, what year is this? This is early to mid '90s. So we like rolled out to Boulder for grad school, dropped into the kind of alpha hippie psychedelic action sports community, basically. So it was like backcountry skiing, whitewater rafting, mountain biking, climbing, those kinds of things um, at you know very high levels. You know, like people world class and risking life and limb, and, and a number of people dying. Every year, in slides, in rivers, in wherever. So there was a there's a relationship to Kali. There's a relationship to death, right? And 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 things bigger than us. And then at night, whether it was at Telluride Bluegrass or was it you know Boulder or the, the mountains above Boulder, you know full moon gatherings and that kind of shit, like throwdowns with the tribe. But because it was mediated via nature and via communitas, no one ran off and joined gurus. There was none of that West Coast fucking squishy, you know, like new age spirituality. And yet there was profound awakening and celebrating in, yeah, in church and church was the backcountry. And so, and, you know, maybe people got really into a band, you know, or Jerry Garcia or something, but even that was like, nah, he's, he's the fucking guitarist. Like he's the one, he is the, he is the hierophant. He is the one bringing us to that place. What's that word you just used? Hierophant, like the, the mediator of the sacred. Ooh, I like that word. Right. Um, and, 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 but to the point of like the spectrum, um, well, actually, I mean, I'll just, I'll just finish that. So music, yes. Hell yeah. That's where you get together and renew your faith in fellow man. Um, the mountains slash oceans, just natural sublime from Wordsworth to Thoreau to Whitman, the whole gang, right? To the Old Testament, right? Everybody has always gone to the desert or gone to the wilderness to seek clearer, clarified connection to source, right? And then psychedelics, for sure, um, just profound sense-making, pattern recognition, identity, um, evolving information feed. Um, and, you know, in depending on the substances and depending on the dosages, either connecting you to the earth and relationship to it or launching you to domains <laughs> otherwise unaccessible. Um, and then marriage um, in the sense of dedicated dyadic partnership and, and both in the, the psychosexual realm, sustained commitment to um, psychoarchaeology, right? To excavating down to true self. Right, um, and then if you pursue the path of family, the actual growing and raising of humans, against which you can never, you know, nothing supersedes that. You're like, okay, this is a tabula rasa. This is the blank slate. These are our offspring. Whatever we believe about the world, the state of the world, the future. If it, if we can't do it here, loving our own children, then we have no business going beyond that. Um, and so, like that. Those were our constraints. Those were our experiences. And, and as a result, there was no bowing down to a, you know, to a, to a, a human. We, we had no need for human mediation, basically. Like, whatever we were getting directly from source, if we fucked it up, we knew who was wrong. It was us. We hadn't followed a guru with feet of clay for a decade only to blow out the back of a fucked up cult situation and go, oh my gosh, now I have to rethink everything. If we had an error, it was 100% on us every time. 
and we had an embodiment practice of movement and training and challenge, situational awareness, decisions, tolerance for adversity, right? I mean, like I just say, like to the West Coast burner crowd is get in the ocean, get in the mountains, learn to be a homegrown human, learn how to travel, learn how to navigate, learn how to push yourself, learn how to be scared, learn how to coordinate in hard situations. Burners Without Borders, I think, is, you know, I will continue to hold those guys up as exemplars of what all of us ought to be doing. I, I camped with Burners Without Borders this year for this exact reason, this exact conversation. <laughs> nice. I'm not working with them off playa, but yep. um, I camped there um, after being at a, at a kind of conscious entrepreneur camp <laughs> the year before. Uh-huh. Um, and um, this, I, I, I think that a lot of burners have these desires and they do want to push themselves. Mm-hmm. I think where it's tricky is this Instagram culture, the personal brand, mm-hmm. the kind of like the performance of enlightenment. Mm-hmm. I think that that's part of where I think a lot of people are getting led astray. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, absolutely. And, and just to, I just want to, cause I, I opened the thread, which was how do we make sense of um, these ecstatic technologies like dead shows or the playa where not everybody seems to get it or there seems to be this widespread. And my, and my sense was going to my first dead show where I'm like, Oh my gosh, you know, like second set, nothing but grace and redemption. You know, like this is true. Like as Joseph Campbell said, said about those guys, like this is a modern day right of Eleusis. And I was like, Oh my God, I'm so grateful. I normally am deeply ambivalent about human society and culture and, you know, others. And yet I feel super connected to all these people. And then we'd go out into the lot afterwards, like on a feather bed, cloud of love and joy and you're like wait a second this looks dark like what's going on all those cracked out nitrous kids and all the fucking junky kids and all the dready kids scrambling for spare change like what is that like how could 20 minutes ago we were all in god's fair line back pocket and now this looks like some shady ass babylon you know that's been going on for millennia and you're like oh angels and moths are both drawn to the light Ooh, that's a really great expression. Angels and moths are both drawn to the light. Yeah, and so so I think it's critical. And, and so, because people would often be sneering and contemptuous of deadhead culture, and they would point to the little ratty dready kids and that the low end of the tour scene as evidence that it was rotten or wrong. But, you know, you, again, you catch Jerry in the middle of one of those riffs, and it was sublime and transcendent. And the same with Burning Man. You're like, hey, it is arguably the most potent, largest scale, ecstatic technology ever developed by humans at any point in history. And I would put that even up against Kamela, right? You know, in the sense of potency, not just not just sheer raw size. And you would never have 75,000 people gone so far. I mean, this it would be normally, you know, half a dozen, a dozen people, a few dozen people at a time. We're talking 75,000 fucking people ramped up to non-ordinary positioning. And yet you get all of the problems. And I think, was it, um, gosh, I forget the name, Magister, what's his name? Uh, uh, Caveat? Yes. He was just on my podcast, like two podcasts ago, Caveat Magister. Okay. And so didn't he just write something like, Burning Man is always getting fucked up and always ruined. Yeah, yeah. It's the history. Um, it's a brief history of who ruined Burning Man, and then yeah. he goes through and and he talks about each one, and basically every year Burning Man is getting ruined. Yes, and so and so and then was what there was a Fosco article on yeah, the Instagram. influencers. Yeah. yeah, influencers may root in Burning Man where billionaires did not, or something. like yes, that. Yes, exactly. So I was just mulling that, and I was like, okay. So I always find it amazingly helpful to anytime there's a present issue 
to be like, oh, okay, let's wind this shit back and be like, what's the historical precedent? And then you get perspective, right? You're not just fixated on the current framing of an issue, right? You can actually see the prior precedents and iterations and, and, and detect the pattern, right? So that's super helpful. And that's what I think he did in that article. He's like, hey man, when sound camps came in, right? All the, you know, the cacophony society, punk rock, fucking drive your cars and shoot your guns. We're like, this is ruined. You know, when they surveyed the city, ah, this is all getting locked down, right? And, Bernie, and his point, which I think is great, which was, hey, we're actually, this is a sign of our success. We're actually failing forwards into newer and more complicated problems, right? Which I love. And yet I was also thinking about it. I'm like, okay, but there is something abjectly pernicious about the digitally amplified narcissism of Instagram culture. And I was just reading a piece. I feel like it was in the New Yorker, but it might've been someplace else. And I mean, and it's cropping up everywhere in the outdoor community as well, where surfing is getting fucking wrecked by Instagram culture as well. And that even pro surfers like are now stylizing their moves in such a way for the camera versus for the expression of themselves in the, in that moment on that wave. And, and the same with backcountry experiences, right? There's the geotagging on Instagram things and lots of gorgeous, beautiful places around the world are now becoming literally trampled and inundated because now so many people see it once, go there, grab theirs, and it's extractive tourism. And then it goes all the way to the extremes where people are dying. Um, not just the dumb fucks like stepping off half dome or something trying to get the selfie, but like climbing extreme peaks um, there, there, there's, uh, there's a peak near Aspen where like 10 or 15 people died in five or six weeks because it's a knife edge ridge, but some fuckwit had put a YouTube video up of like, here I am on the couple of, you know, on, on Capitol peak, look at me. And then it just lemmings and no one should have been up there. They'd had no experience and they were putting themselves, Mount Whitney is another example in California where there's a rash of heightened accidents and incidents, which is overtaxing local search and rescue, wilderness medicine, or, you know, resources, all that. Because people are seeing it on Instagram and being like, well, I must be, I want that, or I can do that if they can do that. And so it's not just transformational Burning Man culture. Arguably, it is every single ecstatic technology we have to strip away self and ego is now getting co opted. And do the opposite. To do the exact opposite. So here I am down in Peru in the jungle about to go deep, you know, see you guys in a couple of weeks, you know, hashtag, you know, Anaconda visions, you know, and you're like, oh, fuck. Have, have you ever been that guy? Have you ever done that? Have you ever been kind of caught up in the presentation of self in that way? No. So, so it's interesting because I think there's some really brilliant people who have not been caught in it who are watching it and, and observing it. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you as someone who has been, and then it's, I'm like a smoker in this context, you know, like uh -huh. I, um, I realized that smoking was bad for me and I was like, Oh my God, this is really bad for me. I went away from it and I was like, Oh, you know what? I can smoke at parties and then I'm smoking again. Uh -huh. And that's similar to my relationship to, um, Instagram and to social media generally. Like I'm not an, an influencer. I'm, but I want to, it feels there's a weird feeling when you imagine that the thing that you are doing has a special value because others might be watching it mm -hmm. and that, and to get hooked into that and then to feel as if nothing you do has value unless others are watching it. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, I, I, I mean, to be super clear, some of it, I mean, a, you know, I, I jokingly talk about, you know, Englishness, but that's a thing, right? Like the idea of like one doesn't talk about oneself. Um, some of it is generational and even some of it, predates social media where like we'd be in the backcountry back in the day 
And I would never want to take out the camera. I would never want to break frame of being in that quintessential moment that actually we busted ass to get to. So it's actually precious and fragile and fleeting. So here we are in the moment, in the deep now, to take out the camera and to introduce framing of that experience for another, for a later date. We're actually terrible. We've always been terrible at documenting our life. And these days we're actually, you know, and our media team is like, oh, you should just like document, here you are in a day in a life, or here you are in a mountain bike ride, or here you are stand up paddling. I'm like, what the fuck? I go and do those things to get away from this stuff, not, not to bring it with me like toilet paper on the bottom of my shoe. So I'm actually terrible at sharing things that maybe other folks might appreciate or benefit simply because I've got such a sensitivity to breaking out of the moment. So the, so discussing when we just went down that uh, kind of sidebar back to caveat magister, right? And the death idea that Burning Man's always been getting ruined. And absolutely, that's a trope. You know, you should have been here back in the day when. But I do think, like take sound camps for an example, right? Sound camps were culturally distinct from the anarchist punk rock side of Burning Man's origins. And when they rolled in, there was a total culture clash. Right, And it seemed antithetical, totally oil and water. But those sound camps were coming out of the Goa tradition, right? They were coming out of a lot of, and, and it was, they were nonetheless, they might've been diff, a distinct tribe, but they were 100% a highly potent um, and virally growing ecstatic technology. So, right, so there was, there, nonetheless, it was, it was an awkward fit at first. The puzzle pieces didn't just snap into place. But over time, sound camps, function one, pristine fucking systems, the evolution of temple base, like all that shit is 100% contributing to Burning Man and its p- potential and potency as a transformation engine. Digital media, the Instagram influencers, is antithetical. So on the one hand, there's a linear progression of like it has ever, you know, it's always been getting ruined. And this is just the latest. Is it qualitatively different than some of the other mutations, perhaps? And so that, and I, I always just think of that Kurt Vonnegut Cat's Cradle book, you know, where like ice nine is that molecule that like goes around the world and turns all water into ice and basically ends life. And that's how I keep seeing digital narcissism these days. It feels like ice nine. It's ability to get ahead of us and even our most potent efforts to extract our egos and reconstitute them stronger than ever is, I think, profoundly concerning. When, and part of why I wanted to have this conversation and have this conversation in this way is because I feel so close to that. And I feel like my my efforts to dislodge myself and to transcend myself and to be more deeply of service constantly uh, butt up against this kind of hook that keeps coming back. And I think a lot of the people listening um, have a a similar experience. Mm -hmm. It feels so good to get that shot that makes you feel like you were the rock star. I mean, I grew up with with rock stars and movie stars, and I've always wanted to be one, and I've always wanted to be loved and observed in that way. And I've, as I've matured, I've started to understand attachment theory and that this, 
this idea of that we have these deep attachment wounds that can be part of this. Um, for me, I think I have this real, um, I was joking when you arrived that I have a cloying need for external validation <laughs> and, and I'm trying, and I want to solve that, you know, I want to mm-hmm. solve that so that instead of, of looking out at the world and trying to get that validation, which I think so many people, that's how they're existing in the world. That's, that's mm-hmm. their, their motivation. If I'm totally internally validated, then I can look at the world and I can say, okay, here's what's going on with the climate. Here's what's going on with justice. Here's what's going on with the communities around me. And so I'm going to make the following choices because this is the most efficacious way that I can give the most and make everything better. And I see for myself that this need for external validation is my number one uh, obscuration. It's the thing that's getting in the way. Mm -hmm. And yet the technologies, the ecstasis technologies that I hoped would liberate me from this seem to be reinforcing it, especially coupled Mm -hmm. with this kind of digital presentation Mm -hmm. and the desire to be successful and to make a personal brand. And I got a podcast, so I got to promote it. So, So all of these factors together are reinforcing this relationship with this external validation. And -hmm. part of, like I said, why I'm excited about this conversation is not just for the listeners. I love you. Thanks for listening. But for me, like Mm -hmm. how, what is the, like you talked about the diet, the romantic diet. Mm -hmm. You talked about being a homegrown human. Can you kind of lay out some like step-by-step ways of breaking out? I mean, I think the first thing is, is how do we move from like the all consuming focus on personal personal growth, transcendence, state seeking, right? Into back to that homegrown humans, which to me, on the one hand, it's like it's just more of what we've always been. And on and you know, and as far as like what is an aspirational model, um, it to me it feels like anthropos. And in fact, gosh, there's a woman who's a part of the Burning Man community who has done a beautiful painting of an androgynous and Vitruvian man. Oh, is Amanda Sage? Yes. Yeah. Like I love that image. And I think we could all actually contemplate that image because, you know, in most, like particularly in the Western hermetic traditions, the, you know, even the hero's journey, right? Joseph Campbell's model, most people, you know, just, just know it very superficially, but like some of the later stages, one is, you know, reconciliation with the father, right? Can I actually realize instead of the man being someone that I'm trying to avoid or duck, I actually, I become the man. I actually accept the yoke and the responsibility of masculine power. The other is woman is temptress and it's not necessarily women is actually, you know, but actually just all things womb-like nurturing subsuming. So cannabis, porn addiction, any of those things, any diversions and distractions, you know, excess MDMA, you name it, right? Um, woman is temptress. Can I actually, can I stop seeking comfort and oblivion in the womb, right? But then after that becomes the, in the basically the becoming of the sacred androgyne, like the androgynous one, the hermaphrodite. Is that like the the Jungian syzygy thing? Like yeah. the, the unity of the masculine and feminine? Yeah. I'm absolutely. into that. Yeah, exactly. Right. But, but not in weird culture war kind of ways in a, in a mystical way, which, which, you know, and, and in an integrative way. Um, so the question becomes is like, Hey, first of all, I mean, and, and I, the trouble slash opportunity with the psychedelic transformational experience is it is at its root antinomian, right? You what bow, does that mean? It means it is non-hierarchical and does not submit well to authority. 
right? It's why in the 50s and 60s, when they were first dosing U.S. Army soldiers with acid to see if it was, you know, what they could do with it as, as a psyops tool, you know, a number of those soldiers were like, look around and they'd be looked down and be like, why, why the fuck am I wearing this cornball uniform? Why do I have this gun in my hand? I think I'm going to put this down and walk away, right? It, it's antinomian and Keezy and the pranksters and, you know, everything that's come from it. It's not subject to easy tops-down control, nor should it be, right? That's its power and beauty. So the question is, is how then do we have a, how do we have a script? How do we have any kind of guidelines? Because right now, everyone's just building rockets in their driveway, you know, and there's all sorts of dirt and contaminants, and there's a lot of missing spare parts, and no one's got the, no one's got the clean instruction set. So we're having to move from commandments, we're having to move from morals, right? To ethics. So, but we need the ethics. We can't just simply say down with the 10 commandments, you know, we don't need those anymore. Can, can you, can you make that uh, distinction a little more clear between morals and ethics? Yeah. So, I mean, this is, you know, this is a definition. It's not the definition, but a, the way I tend to think of it is morals tend to be binary and exclusive. That's the thou shalt and thou shalt nots, right? And there's generally speaking, even though of course life is messy, there's no wiggle room, right? It's, it's one or the other. It's good or bad. And it's dualistic. Um, ethics, it's no longer about the act. Thou shalt do that one. Thou shalt not do the other one. It's about our relationship to the act, which is an order of magnitude, more complex, subtle, and nuanced. And it's why no society has ever tried to use ethics as a social control, because it's not going to work for the lowest common denominator, right? Although here we are on the edge of emerging culture. So what does an ethics right, of, of right action in transformational society look like? How do we go from the Ten Commandments to something more like the Ten Suggestions? Well, and how does that relate to Ten Principles? Because the Ten Principles seem, they're, they're descriptive rather than proscriptive. Yeah. They're, 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 there is more wiggle room. I feel like there's, there's more a gradient about how one engages with them. So does Burning Man Ten Principles sit somewhere between morals yeah. and ethics for you? Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think that, that is a great example of the kinds of things we need more of. Now, that is for the organizing and orientation of that community, right? It doesn't necessarily, and it's sort of basically, it's it's how ought one to engage as a member of this temporary civic experiment. And this is it's awesome. What we are lacking is the counterpart for how do I actually keep growing when I go back from that place into the rest of my life. Mm. So, you know, if you know, this is something I'll be laying out in my next book, the sequel to Stealing Fire. Um, but it's basically, what are the ten suggestions? Like, are there some road rules? Can like, can you um, can you give us a sneak preview of some of the ten suggestions, or do we need to wait for the book? No, I'm mean, I'm always just stoked to talk about stuff as I'm thinking about it. Okay. Well, <laughs> so, you go. Yeah. Um, so the first one is just like do the obvious. Right, so the entire personal growth biohacking space, of which gajillions of calories are burned, you know, and dollars spent, is really all down to like, you know, eat real food, mostly plants, not too much, sleep more, move often, make love, be grateful, get outside. Right, and like that's biohacking. And that's, Done. that's all under do the obvious. Do the fucking obvious. That, like we know all this shit already and you don't need to be blowing your money on someone's supplements you don't need to be like putting nine volt batteries in your tdcs headset and hoping that smart tech is going to save your ass or the hard work it's not do the fucking obvious number two don't do stupid shit right we have access to the most potent psychotechnologies ever aggregated so don't end up in a cult don't end up in a body bag don't end up in a jail cell don't end up in a loony bin don't do stupid shit 
Like we are on our own recognizance and the left-hand paths, AKA all this stuff, all the fun stuff have always been completely circumscribed and locked down for this very reason. Is the left-hand path uh, a Buddhist idea, like a mm-hmm. Zen Buddhist idea? That- yeah. I mean, I think it, it comes more into the Hindu Tantra side and Tibetan Buddhist oh, sides. Okay. Yeah. Like, but it's just the idea of saying the right-hand path, I mean, back to morals and ethics, the right-hand path is code-based morality, right? So only do the good things. So the monastic vows, right? They say poverty, chastity, humility, right? Why did they say those things? They said those things because money, sex, and power are incredibly distracting things. So don't fucking go there. If you want a chance to see God, take those off the table at the beginning and promise never to touch them, right? And so that was the that was basically ascension by exclusion. That's the that's the right hand path. Yeah. And the uh, listeners of this podcast are, I think, to a man on the left hand path. Exactly. Life is a festival. Is the left hand hundred percent? And and you know the general maxim of the left hand path is it's the fastest route to awakening with the lowest success rate. <laughs> so it's it's you know breaking the sticks off bottle rockets and hoping they'll still fucking go where you point them mm. right so because we've taken the stick off we've taken the structure we've taken the spine off but we still have the propul- we still have the propellant right and the likelihood of that blowing up in your face is high so the first two do the obvious and don't do stupid shit so that's basically now you've cleared the decks you're like okay this is just back to being a homegrown human and I'm on my own recognizance. I need to be responsible here. So it's the same thing. Like you don't get towed into jaws or you shouldn't get towed into jaws, right? Um, so you can get the GoPro shot of you surfing jaws if you haven't apprenticed in the ocean for a long ass time, right? So don't do stupid shit because otherwise you're a train wreck for someone else to have to come up and clean up afterwards. Um, but the next one is, okay, so what do we do when we have easy access to all these experiences? Lots of ayahuasca, DMT, blah, 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 way the fuck out over our skis. No, I mean, people are dabbling in those things that have zero business wading into those waters, right? And when we come back, we tend to be compulsive, habituated storytelling monkeys. So we, you know, we're like, oh, default mode, consensus reality, that's all a lie. And now, you know, whatever, I've got guardian angels. Now there's interdimensional entities. Now I have ayahuasca gods and goddesses. They go off the absolute deep end, chuck any kind of discernment, any kind of rigorous sense making, no awareness of lineage, historiography, cross-cultural analysis, comparative religion. They, they think they've just arrived in a brand new landscape and they just make a ton of shit up. And it's massively problematic. So like the simplest is let the mystery stay the mystery. Can we all have those experiences and acknowledge that they are ultimately like, don't try and F the ineffable is like Douglas Adams said back when, right? Because it's infinite, you know, it's, it's fractal turtles all the way down, all the way up and sideways. So attempting to plumb the depths is fundamentally an, an indulgence, a waste of time and false certainty. Do you know, do you know Eric Davis? Yeah, love him. Um, so his new book, High Weirdness, talks yeah. about psychedelics in the 70s. Yep. And um, and one of his things that he talks about is like, it's that it can't just come down to the healing and mommy and daddy and like, mm-hmm. you know, these predictable kind of paths. Let it be infinite. Let it be weird. And yeah. I think the weirdness is something 
when I first went to Burning Man, it was more weird, silly pranks kind of thing. This is about mm-hmm. 10 years ago. For me personally, I think it's different depending where you go and when you mm-hmm. go and whatever. But it was sillier. And then as I've spent my time at Burning Man and I've seen this sort of like transformational, now I'm like, what, what will my transformation be this year? Uh-huh. Um, and yeah. kind of, trying to kind of predict that. And so I think weird is one access point to letting the mystery stay the mystery. Is yeah. like, let it be weird. Let it be uncomfortable. Let it be unresolved. Yeah, I, I think Eric is one of the best commentators in this field, 100%. Um, I'd also throw in Doug Rushkoff, not, not so much in the psychedelic space, although he came up in the early 90s rave scenes, so he's definitely informed in that world. And also Tim Wu at NYU, who was you know media theorist. He wrote about, he was the coiner of net neutrality. We mentioned him in Stealing Fire, talking about like, um, you know, like, the master switch, like the control of information systems, including ecstatic technologies. And he's also got a book all about how we have become co-opted as fragmented, um, isolated consumer individuals, like our, our self identities, which is what fuels the Instagram thing. So that's kind of a sidebar, but hell yes to Eric. And what I have only realized in the last few years is how much of a debt I owe to Ken Kesey and then Robert Anton Wilson, right. And that neck of the woods, which is, write down Eric's wheelhouse, which was, you know, like Kesey said, he's like, the the answer is never the answer. People think they found it and they stop seeking, right? What you really need to do is keep seeking the mystery. He's like, plant a garden where strange plants bloom, right? And mysteries grow, mm. right? And you're like, mm. fuck That's yes. That's so good. Plant right? a garden where strange plants bloom. Yeah. And, 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 and so, and that is awesome. And, you know, those guys, they didn't start a cult, right? I mean, you know, they went over to see Leary. They drove the the magic bus across the country to the Wells Fair and go to see Leary. And Leary has a stick up his ass, right? You know, on the Tibetan Book, Book of the Dead and like trying to reify and codify the whole thing. And they're like, they're like West Coast style. They're like, fuck it. Let's hook down a bunch of Sandoz acid and become superheroes. Like I'm Captain America, you're Captain Trips. Let's fucking roll this thing and let's see what it means to be interacting in um, co-creative archetypes. And so they lived. They lived it as a psychedelic comic book, with play, with fast, with with, with deniability, um, and nothing taken too seriously. And so, and Robert Anton Wilson lays that out perfectly, where he talks about reality tunnels, and he's like, "Hey, a reality tunnel is just a way of seeing the world." right? And don't get stuck. He talks even also about the chapel perilous, right? Like the idea of the Arthurian legends and where like the knight with a pure heart has to go to seek the grail. And if you come undone in the chapel perilous, you're fucked. And, you need, and a lot of, some folks have adopted that as a metaphor for tryptamine space, right? And that idea of like the fractal palaces and all these kind of, and, and the idea that um, false certainty will undo you. And what we're seeing is that these days, people are giving up default world consensus reality. Like, go get a job, get a degree, work your 20 years, get your gold watch, nice house in the suburbs. People are coming into transformational culture. They're getting all these extra perspectives, right, of psychedelic experiences, magic, mystical states, all these kind of things. And they're just swapping default consensus reality tunnel for a newer, blinkier, shinier reality tunnel. And for a while, that looks like progress. For a while, that looks like enlightenment. For a while, that looks like all sorts of awesome things until you realize no matter how sexy and flashy and experientially amazing that reality tunnel is, it's still categorically just another fucking reality tunnel. So it's not the idea of like, oh, I'm tired of my old notes app and now I'm on 
Evernote, or now I'm using Siri. You're like, you're still in apps. You're just going from ones that were built in 2008 to ones that just came out and you got on the app store. That's still the same game structurally. So the question is now, can I actually start contemplating my home screen where all the apps, all the reality tunnels exist and I can tap in, you know, I can literally double tap into one, double tap out of another and use them as tools. And then the question becomes not only that, I'm no longer just swapping out an older app for a newer, cooler app with greater functionality. Can And not only even can I look at my home screen with all of my apps, but can I even begin to contemplate who's fucking holding the iPad? At the risk of being redundant, I just want to come back to this question because I think it's the through line through the whole conversation. Mm-hmm. How do we wake the woke? Um, loving bitch slaps. I mean, basically, backbone and balls. Can we can we, can we model one? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, you're, you look like you're getting up, so I'm worried it might be a real bitch slap. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm, I'm just straightening my back. Um, but honestly, I mean, I mean, we, you know, we just did this. We did a uh, a four month intensive training in our community, right? And there were a lot of people there, you know, and it was sort of nominally a certification to be coaching. You know, f- your community is that in the flow genome project yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And, and amazing folks from you know all around the world like doctors and psychiatrists and, and personal coaches and you know a very neat cross-section entrepreneurs leaders in, in organizations but we were like you know and, and there was a a little bit of the hungry ghost element in certain folks of like give me all the neuroscience give me all of that stuff like the neuroporn right? And I want to know all these parts and pieces. Um, That was one piece. And we're like, hey, we're going to teach you the stuff that you can actually replicate. Like, I don't care whether, you know, whether it's the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex or it's the parietal lobe, if there's no mechanism of action for us to shift it. That's basically kind of abstract knowledge. We're going to give you the tools, right, to actually intervene properly to modulate your self-system for higher resilience and performance. We'll teach you that. Um, But then we also said, look, um, there's going to be 40 hours of community service in your community. Like prime yourself to get in a flow state, but not so that you can listen to Enya, right? Or script, you know, or, or, or do breathy, you know, Instagram updates. Like actually go and like prime yourself to be in an open, expansive state and then go be in service to others in your community and experience what that feels like. And then do embodiment, like actually go and train physically in something you were absolutely disinclined to do. So we had Pilates instructors taking boxing, we had CrossFitters doing trapeze. Ooh, I like that. Right, a lot. so yeah. go against the grain, like just like in Hollywood, like casting against type. Right, what's your fien- What's your expression kinetically? And then go do the exact opposite. You're like, oh, I'm into nurturing Yin Yoga. Do Krav Maga or or, or Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Right, if you're a steakhead and you're really into agro stuff, do something. In, do do ballet. And so there was a repatterning of our neurokinesthetics. So like do the exact opposite and expand your resilience and your physiological, neurophysiological awareness. And then we had everybody do um, a wilderness medicine training. Um, and there's, there's short ones that are like three days long and they, REI is, is collaborating with an organization that we used to work directly with, the Wilderness Medicine Institute. And when you say wilderness medicine, you mean um, treating wounds in the wilderness? It's, it's basically, if there is a single high-potency psychoactive tool for expanding your personal responsibility, your situational awareness, right, and your ability to serve. I, and I can say this from like two decades of like checking this, so this is not like hyperbole. Um, I would say sign up and take a wilderness first responder that is nine days long 
and it's served from the Wilderness Medicine Institute and Knowles National Outdoor Leadership School. Um, and it will you will be a different human being. You will be more different, better, and more useful than if you had gone to a nine-day Vipassana retreat or spent a week in the jungle. Wow. That sounds like step one. Hands fucking down. Yes. Yeah, that sounds like a great... Like, if you're listening to this podcast right now and you're like, get me out of my slumber... Do it. That's the one to do. Do it. Because... And the, the reason it's so psychoactive... I mean, A, it's the coolest human anatomy and physiology class you'll ever take. B, their instructional design is at the level of McKinsey. It's best in class. Like, I've never seen any organization... And I and, you know, get... I'm privileged to work with the top, you know, corporate and enterprise professional services organizations on the planet. And they have... They don't hold a candle to these guys. And why? Because this shit is 40 years of data gathering. And when there's an accident in the mountains or when there's an accident in the notion, they assess, they learn, they grow, they iterate. The precision is spec ops level and it's accessible to civilians. So the first Any is- Any prereqs or you can nope. just sign up and go do it? You can jump in and uh, and and then you can, um, well, then, then you also learn how to fix people when it's not call 911 and the professionals come. Right. And by the way, I mean, FEMA, the head of FEMA just put out a week ago, like, hey, Americans, you really shouldn't be relying on FEMA, like 911. This is as Hurricane Dorian was coming through. So already we have our federal agencies and things like that backing off. Like, and all you need is like, all we're going to have happen is like three things concurrently happening in the US at once. Like, let's picture a storm through the Caribbean, wildfires out west, and some form of drought in the southwest. And we're done. Like our, our international service, you know, our, our social services, resiliency networks, all of them are gone. So what learning wilderness medicine does for all of us is it just says, hey, homegrown human, can you be responsible for yourself? And then can I be responsible for my dyad? Can I be responsible for my family? Can I be responsible for my Dunbar community? Right? Can I be responsible for my tribe, nation, world? And that's a sliding scale. And so the question is, is it's how much resiliency, how much light, how much focus can I hold? And of course, I have to first be standing on my own two feet, right? If I'm wobbly, if I'm stressed out, if I'm freaked out, I'm no good to anybody else. In fact, I'm a liability. But if I have more gas in my tank, can I expand my spheres of concern into increasingly greater roles for the world? And then there's a time scale as well, which is most of us are focused on me now. We're a little bit more oriented. It's not profound, but it's me and mine now, right? The people who look like me, smell like me, talk like me. But then it's all the way to everyone, everywhere, every when, right? And, and so that's our game. How do we expand our, our sphere of concern to include more and more people over more and more time? And then we can potentially be of real service. So embodiment, like acro yoga is awesome, 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 and is also co-opted by Kanchi culture. So the practice, if you want to get sincere about the practice of calisthenics, acrobatics, um, and, and acro yoga, do it within a, within a path to mastery, not just the fun thing we do on the beach to get you know, sexy, right? Or, or, or your showcase. Like that's a dedicated lineage. Go do that. That's rad. Any forms of martial arts, Brazilian jiu-jitsu for women, I think is arguably one of the most subtly but profoundly empowering um, body practices out there. People are really into BJJ, and because yeah. it, it's like chess, but with your body. That's what I. That's how I've heard it described. Yeah, it's basically kinetic chess, but also, I mean, specifically, if we're talking about women and women's empowerment and Me Too movements and all these kind of things, it, it literally reworks the pattern of a woman on her back with her legs spread with an assailant between her. 
And instead of that being the position of vulnerability and not just personal, but like generational and even archetypal trauma, it actually becomes my house. I'm actually trying to get you to this place. And from this place, I own you and control you, which is a ridiculously potent inversion right, of that being a place of vulnerability. And so there's a lot of deep somatic work, and this is not just gendered, this is true for developmental stages. We were actually in Moscow with some these former Soviet doctors who had like worked out that they were using like eye tracking, tongue tracking, various other moments to to detect neurological hitches in our circuitry and basically time stamping where did you experience your moment of trauma and if it was in like zero to six months or six to 12 months or, or, or up to 18 months there are different movement patterns that we link up in sequence as we grow so we like learn to cross crawl like we learn to do diagonal movements we learn to go from on our backs to forwards and if any of those get interrupted right you kind of have your your that circuit's not fully hooked up Right, So we can go back and engage in trauma relief that's not let's do drugs and collapse into cuddle puddles and talk about our feelings incessantly and then process that for weeks on end. Right, You can do it. You can, we can integrate our nervous system and our circuitry right, by engaging in these kinetic practices. So the simplest is become more empowered. Like do that wilderness first aid, but that's only three days, by the way. And so you, and, and if you have the chance to do them in the in the wilderness, you learn tons more because the scenarios are legit. So it's, so it's three days, not in the wilderness. Nine days if you go. Yeah, I mean, it's basically there's there's a there's a stack. The wilderness first aid is three days, and you can go to your local REI and be like, when's the next one? And they're usually in the front country. They're in urban and suburban areas. The deeper dive that much more much more empowering um, is the wilderness first responder, and that's nine days. And then you can go all the way to a month long training of a wilderness EMT, and that would allow you know, and that's that's what we ended up doing, um, and that's what you know is a you know, if you have the time and investment, like, like instead of being like, I'm at, I'm at loose ends. Do I go to Botley or Tulum for three weeks? Or do I go and do another retreat, you know, someplace for my personal growth, go do a wilderness EMT for a month and you'll come out straight. And the other is just service. Like pick your stake in the ground. It doesn't matter. The whole, the world needs all of us and the world needs all of it. So if permaculture is your jam, if natural building is your jam, if inner city work and urban gardens, if helping children, if working with elders, it doesn't matter. Pick where either you're wounded or you're gifted or both. Hmm. And go I like do it. A lot. I, um, you were talking about the developmental movements. Um, I, didn't quite, uh, I didn't quite get what the... So, so your that, trauma that was, appears based on movements that you have, and you were saying that there's a way of working with that trauma and resolving it that doesn't involve constantly talking about it. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, what, what is that process, or is that... Yeah, so... What's that um, modality? What you could... I mean, you know, obviously, this is an entire world, and for folks that are probably familiar with, like, Bessel van der Kolk and the body keeps the score, and that idea of, like, embodied somatic trauma, um, tremor release, EMDR, like the eye movement stuff, breath work, all these kinds of things. We're actually setting up a study right now with Johns Hopkins and their psychedelic researchers on uh, PTSD and breath work, but we're actually skillfully trying to layer in a number of these additional modalities because they're, they're so potent. But what you could call it is sort of the hedonic yoga of becoming, Right, so hedonic meaning working with ecstatic experience and technologies, yoga like the actual multi-limbed path or practice of mastery, and then the of becoming, you know, kind of congruent with that Kesey thing of let you know let the mystery stay the mystery, but sort of how do we unfold our way into 
homegrown humanity. And so if you take a look at it, the, the skill sets are, you know, the most, the easy, obvious ones are working with interventions, like things we can do that are as strongly evolutionarily encoded as possible. Meaning that there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of water already flowing in that direction. And if we can use it, if we can harness it, right, then we can, we can massively accelerate how much healing and integration we do. And so it basically is the idea of, you know, our house, our house starts with the foundation of our neurophysiology, our bodies and brains. Our bodies and brains inform our hearts and minds. And our hearts and minds give rise to or can hold presence for whatever sublime cherry on top you want to put. Whether that's, you know, Martin Luther King's soul force, whether that's the, you know, Eastern tradition of Dharma, just us fully expressed, right? And the tools that are obviously most potent is, you know, respiration, because we're hard encoded to do it no matter what. And it and it's a profound state shifter. You can upregulate, you can downregulate, and you can transcend just by varying the ratio of nitrogen, oxygen, and carbon dioxide. So, would you say breath work is is like a major go to for you? Because I know you talked about surfing, meditation, and psychedelics in the book Stealing mm-hmm. Fire. Mm-hmm. I don't remember breath work in the book. I don't know if you talked about that. Or not. Um, no, but I would say we have we have articulated a protocol that is a combination protocol that as close to anything replicates 5-MeO-DMT with household materials. Where can one find that? Well, I mean, this is what I'm laying out and and, and articulating right now in this book, but it's basically instead of like the anarchist cookbook, you know, which was like how to build a bomb with your kitchen sink, you know, this is like the alchemist cookbook. Can can you rattle it off off the top of your head? For sure. How do we have 5-MeO-DMT in our kitchens? Yeah. I mean, basically, if you engage respiration, movement, and when I say movement, um, basically conscious integrative movement. So with a predominant focus on fascia, so like sliding surfaces, soft tissue, spinal and pelvic mobility, right? And let's just say, you know, vagal nerve tone, if we're thinking about like our bodies, like things we can do that right tune and optimize so would that be like a yin yoga would get the fascia moving or i mean i'd even use tools you know like use 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 rollers use balls use use implements that's another place where acro yoga is beautiful you can have a friend right um foot massage hand massages i mean we have more nerve endings in our hands face and feet than we do in the rest of our body right so any of those kind of things like literally like as we integrate this stuff you release the neurological blockages and then you, you like so you, you're just you're accessing the trauma at a level that's pre-verbal because that's where most of it got put in in the first place so like trying to talk about our feelings is like trying to you know read a floppy disk on your iphone like the data is still stored on that thing it's just that your current tool won't give you actually access to it so respiration is rad <laughs> right and, and and again it's not one thing it's not holotropic breathwork or this other one where I was doing double two-stage breathing or it's this other one where I was doing, like, it's all of it. Like actually practice versatility in respiration so that I can modulate my breathing and, my, and the chemistry of my breathing to match my state to task, which arguably is, I think, a better working definition of enlightenment than any of the more romanticized non-dual ones. That in, in awakening is the ability to match state to task. That's it. 
right? And so the idea of like, oh, I always want to be blissed out and in God consciousness. Well, not if you're crossing traffic, you know, not if you're dealing with a newborn in the nighttime with a fever, you're right. You, you want to be connected to source when you're on a mountain in a vision quest. You want to be connected to my fists and my situational awareness when I'm getting jumped in an alley. <laughs> I want to be connected to my partner and their psychological story and pain when we're doing some kind of healing or connecting, right? So it's not that I want to get to an idealized place and stay there. It's I want versatility across a full spectrum of neurophysiological um, resilience and foundations and access to information. So the next one is obviously if breathing is super strong and bodies and in attuning our bodies are essential because we live in them and how our bodies feel informs the emotions we think we're having and the words we assign to them and the plots we give to them and the stories we tell about them. Um, so that's a really long lever, right? You can get a lot done down lower in that stack. Uh, the next one is obviously sexuality, right? And so John Lilly that we you know wrote about in Stealing Fire, I mean, that... Um, he discovered back in the 50s that in primates, our ecstatic circuitry maps one-to-one -one with our sexual arousal network, which is no surprise because, you know, nature's efficient. And we, no, all of us got here via sexual procreation. And up until really recently, there was never a user manual. No one ever told anybody how to get busy. And yet somehow we all figured it out. Right. It's like that Brooke Shields movie, Blue Lagoon, you know, where the two kids are on, stuck on the desert island and then they hit puberty and they start kind of fumbling around and, you know, get it on. You're like, OK, that has happened millions of times in the evolution of Homo sapiens. How? That's the most ridiculously potently encoded evolutionary driver we've ever had. And Dr. Nicole Prousey, who was at the Kinsey Institute and is now doing lots of research on women's sexuality and porn. She was doing the studies for orgasmic meditation and exploring that. You know, she's even articulating a case of, you know, women's orgasm is prescription pharmaceutical. The idea of, you know, and Rick Doblin, um, we were just at the Battery uh, with Jason Silva a, a few months ago, and he was sharing some of their recent research that MDMA and PTSD therapy, right, is actually the closest analog is, you know, high vasopressin, high prolactin, high oxytocin, right, um, you know, some serotonin, et cetera. It's like the closest we can tell is a post-orgasmic state. So you're like, hmm, okay, well, we've got this incredibly volatile, super controversial, controlled substance that does this. How else on earth could we possibly get people to a post-orgasmic state? <laughs> right? um, so you realize that um, cultivate, and then, and then throw in music, which is even pre-linguistic in human evolution. Like we were actually making sounds and making rhythms to communicate before we actually had language. And so you're like, okay, that's deep. And that is an incredibly potent and training device, as anybody who's ever stood in front of a sound stack knows, right? And then substances. So that five-pot stack, right? Uh, respiration, movement, music, sexuality, substances. And then, you know, can you, the final S is, can you bundle those into a sacrament, a deliberate intentional ritual designed to produce a given effect? You know, and spoiler alert, hell yeah, you can. The last one is substances, and mm -hmm. I feel like substances in, for many people, the substance is the one way to do all of those things. Yeah, You're for just sure. like, well, I'm, I'm not going to do the breathing or the movement or anything. I'm just going to take the pill and take the ride. For sure. Yeah, and so, so basically it goes from fly fishing, or fishing with dynamite to fly fishing, right? So fishing with dynamite is let me take the heroic dose, five grams silent darkness, right? And see what happens. And you can do that, and you do eat 
dinner, you catch some fish with that stick of dynamite, right? But you also just fucking created a lot of collateral damage. It may take you months to integrate. You might misintegrate or misinterpret things. You might end up way over your skis and in trouble, like you're into dog shamanic realms. You have no business being in. All kinds of things can happen, right? When you just, you know, pull the pin on the grenade. So instead of that, you can go with fly fishing, which is like match the hatch. You know, you're like, what bugs are balloon, you know, are, are breeding right now? What are the fish actually eating? Can I tie a little fly that's a simulation of the thing that is naturally happening around me and get it right into the right place at the right time? And I still eat, right? But, I've, but I've, I have sustained myself via a deep listening and integration into the flow of life versus just depth charging it, right? Anyway, and so when you combine more modalities, let's talk about those five. When you do those, basically what it means is A, you have more steering because you can turn up or, or down. You can upregulate or downregulate across a dashboard, right? So it's basically safer. I know there's a big honking great asterisk on the safer, right? But it is basically more steerable. And then also you can go with amplitude over wavelength, Right, so if you picture Burning Man, Burning Man is going to Burning Man is basically a commitment to one tenth of your year. The few weeks in preparation where your mind is not on whatever else you were doing, the week to ten days you're there, the week to two weeks afterwards, if even just getting back to a sleep cycle, by the time you shake it off, you've basically just detonated four to six weeks. You know, and it's often profoundly valuable and worth it. <laughs> but you know, like like that's a big hit right? Or a 14-hour acid bender or whatever it would be. It doesn't fit in a householder's life that well, right? Um, and particularly if you're you know, raising families or holding down commitments in the world, etc. But if you combine things, you can go with amplitude, which is how high does it get me into novel information and inspiration? How high does it get me up into that realm of insight right? That I can act on versus the time period. That's what I meant about wavelength. How long did it take me to do the depth charge move instead? So that is arguably a really, I think, a worthwhile innovation because right now it feels like we're good at the macro sacrament. We're good at the once a year Burning Man play, right? Most people know that one. They have access to that one, whether or going down to Rhythmia in Costa Rica, whatever it would be, some like it's expensive, whether it's time, money, or both, right? Those kind of investments. What we're terrible at are the micro sacraments, right? We tend to go from zero to a million with very little in between. And that's where people, everybody's having such trouble integrating because my daily practice of like meditation and like I do my down dogs and my sun salutation, I'm kind of not feeling it. I mean, there's just feel so far from that other thing, right? And so the, the devil is in the details. It's in all of that transition space. So basically, you know, we want to play with skillful sequencing of ascending intensity ecstatic practices mapped across an annual rhythm. So what you could call like a hedonic calendar. An annual rhythm. So could you give us an example of your hedonic calendar? Yeah. Just broadly? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, basically think of it in terms of like daily practices. That's the foundation. I'll do your push-ups, floss your teeth, your yoga, your sitting, anything that's good for you that you know that is and sustainable, but it doesn't knock your socks off every time you do it, right? I don't, you know, wait to floss my teeth in that day because my teeth feel extra shiny and bright. I do it because I believe that it's valuable over the long term. So all that sustaining, you know, capacity expanding foundational practice. What we're missing by and large these days is, you know, basically Sabbath, like grab the Sabbath again, repurpose that fucker, 
you know, unplug your router and dedicate at least half a day a week to deep contemplation and peak state, right? And so that's where you can start layering in some of those five practices. And that could be, you know, block out three hours of sexual intimate practice with your partner, block out three hours to be in as pure and deep in nature as you can possibly get to with downtime, not just like running my Fitbit and tracking my Strava, you know, <laughs> like literally giving myself a chance to really drop deep. Once a month, dedicate a day. Once a quarter, dedicate a weekend. Once a year, you get your Burning Man week, right? And that keeps a flywheel going. So instead of going zero, you know, like zero to a million, back to zero to a million, which is very it's, it's hard. It's a lot of wear and tear and there's a lot of taxing of our meaning making and our bandwidth. Instead, take a Burning Man experience. That's like, like kicking the potter's wheel, you know, <laughs> right? You've given it a big ass boost and that thing is spinning now. So now it takes way less energy to keep it spinning than it took to originally get it spinning, right? So that's where you're like, okay, now I'm going to go back to my daily practices. I come back from the burn. I catch up on my sleep. I'm like, oh yeah, I've got a sense of like, today's a new day. This is a new chapter. I want to live this with intention, All right? But we got to add in the, the weekly, monthly, and seasonal. And, you know, some of the simplest is um, the breath work plus movement, music, using orgasm as a technique to store and load energy and then pulse it through our nervous system, right? And then substances, which you can now back way off on. So with as simple as, you know, and again, if anybody has any reason not to do any of the things, you don't have to do any of the things. So if you have an ethical reason, a cultural reason, a legal reason, a personal reason, any reason not to do a thing, you don't you just back that one out of the stack. You just do the other ones. You'll just have to do the other ones for greater intensity or duration. But it's, I mean, any one of them gets you there to your point, right? I mean, you can just do breath work. I mean, Stan Groff and holotropic breath work is just breath work, right? Um, going to listening and ecstatic dances, just music, music and movement, right? So any one of these gets you there. So you don't need to stack them. If you choose to stack them, you can often get higher into the information layer to more interesting places with less time and effort. So where breathwork might take three hours of hyperventilation to get to a place in one hour of breathwork, movement, music, sexuality, and then let's layer in cannabis and oxygen and nitrous oxide. You, you combine things in that neck of the woods with extended, uh, basically, you know, what Aleister Crowley would have called sex magic, right? You can end up in some fascinatingly deep and profound places. And it's not just informationally, you're defragging your nervous system and you're overlaying you're reintegrating trauma but you're not doing it talking about it you're doing it much more like maps is doing with mdma which is like put my system my whole self system into a state of safety security acceptance enoughness and then let me go back to traumatic things and let me rework them and i can reformat or overwrite my hard drive right with newer better narratives and interpretations. And that really is that that's what I mean about like the hedonic yoga of becoming, you know, it's sort of like, um, well, I'll pause there. Cause that's a fair amount of info. 
Yeah, it's a wonderful amount of info. I was, it was just occurring to me that we, in a sense, we kind of um, did the podcast a bit backwards in that <laughs> that all of these like helpful tips about, well, not tips really, but like protocols for um, how to heal and how to optimize almost could have gone in the beginning. And then we can talk about the pitfalls of getting caught up in your selfhood later. But I actually like that we did it this way instead, because now you have like the warning sign is clearly on the package before you get the goods. Yeah, and 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 you know, again, back to uh, this one's actually Philip K. Dick, who I think introduced it. Um, but it was, talks about that notion of anamnesis, like the opposite of amnesia. So it's it's the forgetting of forgetting, which is often that you know many many folks will report and acknowledge that in a peak state, one of the felt senses is, "Holy shit, I've been here before." And, quite, and, and here is good, and here is where I want to be. It, it is right, it is true, it is, it is timeless, um, it, is, it is closer to my true essence. Um, uh, deep truth, capital T truth, is sort of appreh- is, is apprehensible. It's, I can reach out and touch it. I actually can see it. I can glimpse it. Um, and, then, you know, and then we forget our remembering. So like as we go, you know, as we descend back into density and kind of 3D existence, um, you know, we may hold it for hours, days, even weeks, if we're lucky, but ultimately it fades, right? We, we lose the afterglow. And then even though we swear we haven't lost anything, we do. And you only remember that you do when you get back there again and you're like, oh my God, fucking A, I could have sworn I didn't, I didn't miss a drop this time, but I have. And so in some respects, this feels like this hedonic yoga idea is basically, um, and the idea of making a calendar of it, is just making sure that I remember often enough, right? That two things happen. Either, like studying for a test, I've practiced it and I remembered it often enough that now it truly is loaded into long-term memory. It's not such a slippery fish anymore. It's embodied. I have a somatic marker for it. Or I simply just relax and trust. I know I'm going to get back there and I know how I'm going to get back there and I know roughly when I'm going to get back there so I can just embrace the ebb and flow of my awareness and I'm no longer so fixated on to hanging on to it. I'm having the most marvelous meta moment about the promise of this podcast. Mm. So this podcast is called Life is a Festival. Mm-hmm. And for a while I was thinking I might change it because like life is a festival could mean let's just keep going to festivals. Life is a party. Life is yeah. life is just celebration. It's not these other pieces. Um, and yet the idea of life is a festival, like let's make our life more like what feels so right when we are in communitas, mm-hmm. um, ecstasias, when we are in these spaces. And so I'm having this wonderful kind of like meta moment of like thinking about the podcast as you're speaking and about what the promise of the podcast is, which is let's make our lives more like a festival. And what you're describing is real sustainability. Um, and you said earlier, your phrase was um, the state to match the task. Yeah. Um, and I guess really to live a life that is more like a festival um, it's not all peaks. It couldn't be. Only Hanuman, the monkey god, can leap from peak to peak. We have to go down. Um, but if you calendar it, and if you um, and if you are truly in service and truly in community, if it's not just all about you, if it's not just all about your Instagram, you can build yourself a life that is all of the things that you loved most about that peak festival experience. Uh, you can actually build that if you plan it right. 
Oh my God, yeah. And we and we would notice that, like you know, when we, because we were like teachers, you know, we were kind of in academic calendars. We'd have four months a year off when we were, you know, in our twenties and early thirties, and um, and yeah, it was van life before there was a hashtag for it. 100%, you know, and we'd have our surfboards and our kiteboards and our mountain bikes and our teleski gear and our climbing gear, and we'd just beetle around. And then we'd ninja in and out of music festivals or good shows. So we wouldn't just like follow the dead around. We're like, fuck that, you know, like, like we will catch you guys in this awesome spot and in that awesome spot. And in between, we'd be in the backcountry. We'd be adventuring. And then we'd come back and you'd kind of see it. And so like we would have been gathering merit, almost like Taoist, you know, like the Taoist idea of like, go stand under a beautiful waterfall, go meditate on a mountain you know, collect chi, right? We would have been living large in beautiful nature. And then we'd come back with the ability to put the exclamation point on the end of that sentence of life. And as a result, right, we weren't constantly hitting the buzzer. We weren't doing the bliss junkie epiphany whore thing. And as a result, there was cyclicity, right? We were, we were, we were at peak states and then we were at deep ground in recovery and application. And then your peaks are higher and your recoveries are lower versus constantly trying to redline with no variation. So it feels to me like there's a, a possibility here for sort of an integrated practice of almost what you could call like ecotonics, like in, in environmental studies, right? Ecotones are the edge habitats. Right, so meadow to forest. Oh, like in social right. permaculture, they talk about the edge as the place of diversity. Exactly, or or tidal pools to the ocean. Like it's where most of life happens, and not only is where most of life happens, it's where contrast happens. And so, if you think about our own states of consciousness, it's not when we're exclusively in a given frame of mind, brainwave state, right, orientation, task focus. It's when we're transitioning between them that we notice we right when we're in it we are subject to it. When we're trust transitioning between them, we become object aware of both the thing we were in, which we're now leaving, and the thing we're about to enter, which we're not yet. And that is- The liminal state? That's the liminal state, and it's fucking incredibly rich and useful. So if you think about like, is it worth, you know, oh, we should get into alpha wave states, because that's groovy and that's what meditators do, or oh, even cooler theta, wave, theta states, or oh, even cooler delta, you know, whatever, right? You could say, no, it's actually not- being exclusively locked in any of those, it's paying attention to the edges. And so ecotonics would just be body, mind, spirit, planet. These are the things, and, and the planet does not need to be some lefty green manifesto. It's just clean water, food, clean water, clean air, clean soil. Like these things are necessary for thriving homegrown humans, period. And that is post-political common sense. And so ecotonics is just that idea of like, how do we embrace basically learning to surf the edges and practice range and resiliency in our entire self system and how much we can pay attention to and then act on. I so badly want to end on this joyful note because it feels so joyful. Mm. The fourth thing you listed was planet. Yeah. And I feel like I would be remiss not to take a moment to talk about the ticking clock and mm -hmm. the work that needs to be done. Because yeah. I think one of the forcing functions on waking up from these cycles of personal growth that are ultimately kind of masturbatory mm -hmm. is that um, we, are, we need to have all hands on deck in order to move through this ecological phase shift triumphantly and not get shooken off by the planet. Mm -hmm. And so... I feel like rather than ending on like, yes, we can do it with the, the hedonic calendar, which I do mm -hmm. believe, mm -hmm. I w I'm curious to know whether you think we can do it 
-hmm. the time we have left. Mm -hmm. If we can use tools like these and and um, and get them adopted uh, adapted quickly enough that we that we're going to make it. Um, Do you are you an optimist as far as the climate crisis is concerned? Um. Well, how much how much time do we want to bracket this? Because this will govern which fork of this road I go down. Well, it's up to you. I okay. have all the time. It's it's also up okay. to your beloved whether she is down to continue <laughs> hearing about this. I think for us, we've we've done an hour and a half of conversation. Okay, so let's try and keep it to like ten to fifteen. Is okay. That way? Yeah. Okay. Um. So this does all actually completely tie together. So this is not a dogleg on the conversation. This is the whole point of the hedonic calendaring. Perfect. This is the whole point of what does it mean to actually become a homegrown human, right? Without pretense, without artifice, like deeply rooted in more of what we have always been. Um, and it's absolutely connected to that, that the concept of anthropos. What does it mean to be an integrated, awake human? Um, because the short answer is... Um, no, I'm uh, as far as um, optimistic. I'm um, what? What did? What did? Brace it! What did? What are you fucking? God, I just David Data just sent me something, and then and I responded back to him. I said, "This is um, bracingly, bracingly grim." I said that should be your tagline, <laughs> right? But that sense of um, no, I think we're in. We are in for it, and we are in for a uh, destabilization of social structures and standards of living that folks of three generations in the developed West haven't experienced, specifically baby boomers, Gen Xers, and millennials. So we are uniquely ahistorical and ill-prepared for what's coming. If you grew up in Afghanistan or you saw the fall of Eastern Europe or you've been in Venezuela or Colombia, if you've basically lived, or South Africa, or you lived anywhere else in the world, over the last half century, you get it. You have, you've seen these things come and go. You understand the fragility of social systems that, you know, like Ozymandias, like end up eroded in the dirt. We haven't. We've been, we've been sold a bill of goods, a relentless, optimistic, linear improvement over time. And the Pax Americana of like post-World War II, Bretton Woods, Marshall Plan, you know, 50s suburbia madmen to now. Right. And so we, so for us, it is damn near impossible for us to wrap our heads around it. And it's, and history doesn't give a shit. So, and there's an awful lot of magical thinking, whether it's, you know, conscious capitalism going to say, you know, up till a few years ago, it was Silicon Valley is going to save us, you know, then maybe conscious capitalism. Now maybe it's blockchain. Now maybe it's, you know, you know, psychedelic renaissance. No, none of those things will save us. None of them, not even close. And the trouble is, is that we're fixing to get ready right now with optimal conditions and we're still shitting the bed. So all of these transformational groups come together, they fall apart, there's splintering, there's fragmentation, there's narcissism, there's you know game game theory power plays like we aren't getting our shit together with a countdown clock, right? Writ large and ideal conditions. Like for most of us, nothing bad has even happened yet. And we can't even get to the starting line with our shoes tied. So, Yikes. right. So my sense is, is actually what will, if, if there is to be redemption, we actually weirdly, sadly need visceral pressure on our system. So there will be, there will be additional collapse. There will be more pain. We, we are not waking up with this amount of pain. 
We're just not capable. We're not cognitively wired to be able to extrapolate complex, abstract. In fact, Daniel used that term like our threats aren't the Nazis. You know, it's not it's not the Blitz of London. Like my dad, as a kid, hid under a kitchen table during the London Blitz. Like that shit's real. And one generation ago, for anybody that had you know parents or, or, or grandparents in the Holocaust, right? That's just real. But it was tangible. Climate change, AI gene editing. That shit's abstract. We can't wrap our head around it. Therefore, we're not, you know, E.O. Wilson, uh, that Harvard biologist, you know, he said it so well. He said, we've got paleolithic brains, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. You know, like we're literally 50,000 years behind the times as far as the neurological and cognitive wiring we have to make sense of this fucking crazy ass radical novelty and consequence we're looking at. So we're just, we're stuffed. Now that doesn't mean we don't have a shot. And the shot is, I mean, A, I think it's gonna get worse before it gets better. And there is no asymmetrical salvific play that we can cross our fingers and go fucking fuzzy and, and hope for. So I don't, I mean, unless, unless or until there is, you know, disclosure of interdimensional intelligence, unless or until we have a near miss or a direct hit of a meteorite, or unless until something some nonlinear event levels us up to global centric consciousness, right? We're going to keep doing this how we're doing it right now. And therefore folks need to start acting. In fact, there's a, what's, what's that book called? Golly, I'll have to think of it in a second. There's a book on basically how do people respond in crisis? And they did case studies like world, you know, trade center, all these kind of different tragic events, plane crashes, et cetera. The difference between the survivors and the folks that just go up in smoke is that the survivors understood the stakes sooner and started acting on it. So those are the fuckers that were sprinting down the stairs in the World Trade Towers after the first building hit. They didn't mind whether they were going to run the risk of being hot or sweaty or ridiculed by their colleagues if it turned out to be a non-event. They fucking understood something was up, was unusual, and they acted immediately. Right. And so my biggest advice, and this goes back to community service, building resilient local communities right, and wilderness medicine, like becoming an empowered human, not dependent on ephemeral services from others, right, is do the 80-20, like have batteries, have water, have you know, food, clothing, shelter, energy, water purification, heat, light, like common sense shit that if you spend any time in the backcountry, you know. And most people are deconditioned zoo animals. So don't be a de deconditioned zoo animal and do the 20% of activities that will provide 80% of your resilience over 72 hours to three weeks of disruption and shit. Did, did right? the book that you mentioned outline exactly how to, exactly what to focus on? Or is there a resource that, that you know, if the listener is like, I want to do all these things, mm -hmm. what's, a, what's a checklist I can do? Yeah, I mean, look, you will end up down the prepper rabbit hole in a heartbeat if you go checking this stuff out, right? Um, but some, some non-whacknut stuff, uh, there's a book called The Knowledge, which is How to Rebuild Civilization from Scratch by one of the PhDs on the NASA Mars colony research, and it's fascinating. Um, so that's a super good one. Um, Neil Strauss wrote a book called The Emergency. So he's the guy who wrote the game back in the day, right? Yeah. Um, and he got freaked out. And he, but he wrote a really good book because I mean, he's such an engaging writer about his whole process. He's like, do I, he was like, I get another passport so I can fuck off to a safe place. He did his, he did his medical training. He started plugging with EMS. And the big, you know, the, the outcome of that was, you know, he was like a nebbishy neurotic guy who was like looking out to save his own ass. And then he's like, oh, urban escape and evasion. He did the whole bit, right? And he's like, oh, I started out as the guy trying to run away from this problem. And I've become the guy who's walking towards it. 
And that's what we need. So that, that's that, what we all need to be doing. That, that's what brings me to full circle on the hedonic calendar, this process of becoming, how we can not just wake up and constantly keep waking up and waking up and waking up, you know, in the transformational scene, but also do the growing up and also doing the showing up, which is that if we create a balanced and integrated practice in our life, right? That it, seem, it seems like, and I don't presume to know this, but it feels this way enough that I've come to trust it as at least a hypothesis, which is that it feels like the nature of the game, the relationship between ecstasis, communitas, and catharsis, right? Is that when we have those ecstatic peak experiences, we both remember what we forgot, we feel ourselves and the world at full strength and pristine beauty. And we're also given our punch list of shit we still got to do, right? The places we're broken, the places we're fucked up, the places we're egoic, the places we're out of integrity with that, right? If we go back home and we humbly knock out our punch list, we do that which we've been shown, then we heal and we integrate. And it's, of course, always in that loop with others. The I think humbly place. is one of the keys, too. I think yeah. humbly to do the work that is not sexy, to do the service that is not sexy. Because for me, it's like, I serve, I got a podcast, that's service, but yeah. that's sexy service. You know, like, yeah, for sure. Am I, am I going to go to San Quentin, as uh-huh. you mentioned, um, one of your colleagues earlier, yeah. or am I going to go sit with some lonely elder people? Like, that's not sexy service, but I think yeah. that the the humble part is to bring it back to the beginning of the conversation. I think that's one of the key points because it can so inflate and disappear if it doesn't have that piece. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and the beauty, I mean, the nice thing about Burning Man is like one of the things that's so liberating about it is like, holy shit, I can just bump into strangers and I can blurt anything that comes out of my mouth and we're all kind of playing this archetypal cosmic improv together and just more awesome happens when we engage fellow humans. So yeah, it can be a soup kitchen. It could be a prison, you know, it could be those places, but it can also just be walking down the street. You know, it can also be your actual neighbors. It doesn't have to be, um, again, back to virtue signaling. It doesn't have to be that thing which I think I ought to based on how others would perceive the thing I'm about to do. Um, But just, you know, to kind of come back to this cycle, right? So if we act on and integrate that which we've been shown, if we cherish the things that we've been seen and we do our level best not to forget, right? Then the next time we come back to those peak experiences, we're often rewarded with a level up. Mm. It's like, ding, 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 ding. Thanks for playing. You now come back and you have a new sword of light. You have an awesome shield. You have extra boots that let you fly. And if you go back prematurely, if you're like, ah, yeah, I don't fucking feel like getting, I'll get to that later. Ah, I don't even need to. And you're either on a you know, manic high, I'm, I'm all that and I don't need it. Or you're on a depressive low of fuck, I don't have the juice anymore. Where's my next hit? And we go back to the grail castle prematurely, it either slams in our face or it opens, but it opens to the Hotel California. It opens to addiction. It opens to compulsion. It opens to inflation and distraction. And so if we stay humble and we do our work and we keep doing this practice, there is, you know, we find ourselves accessing the garden. We find ourselves accessing that still point between Kairos and Kronos, between sacred time and mundane time. Right, and there is the beating heart of Christ consciousness, right, and that—that's the esoteric understanding of the cross, right. It's not that, that there was ever. I mean, in, in the Gnostic tradition, it's like, no, they didn't fucking nail him up, you dumbasses. That was a metaphor, <laughs> right. And the metaphor is, we get to Eden, we get to the kingdom of heaven that is here on earth, all around us, wherever two or more are gathered, there I shall be, right. We get to that by embracing our. You know, it's sort of like our, our, our spirituality is massively overrated, but our humanity is massively underrated. 
and our humanity is the sum total of our mortality and our divinity. And that's Kairos Kronos, right? Our Kairos, right? We're perfect as we are. And our Kronos, and we could use a little work. And, and when we get to that garden where past, present, and future co-arise, right? As many of us have experienced, right? I mean, time gets wonky in peak states. You're like, oh, fuck. Same as it ever was. <laughs> Same as it ever was, right? And what does that experience sometimes show us? Sometimes we get teleported to the end of the story, right? Sometimes the whole thing comes undone and we're like, oh, my God. I've, I've been given the cheat codes to the end of time. And, oh my God, the good news, the good news is that this all works out. The good news is this is all part of the plan. The good news is we're here to make our contribution. Like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, boom, you know, we come back from Oz, back to wake up in Kansas on the farm, and we're in this 3D life again, and we're back to the grind, we're back to Kronos, we're back to the mortal coil, we're back to our limitations and the scarcity and the uncertainty and the fear and the, and the hardships, but we have the boon, we have the gift of the hero's journey, right? We have the gift, and the gift is, it all works out. But the catch, right? Because, I mean, this could easily slip into Calvinistic determinism of like, ah, oh, shit, man, I've seen the end of the game, it all works out, so fucking wheels off, man, I can go, you know, eyes closed, I don't even have to steer, but you realize, oh my god, the story is the greatest story ever told. The story is against all odds in the 11th hour. You know, with, with the, the, you know, whatever it's called, what is the, the Battle of Helms? Yeah, I mean, Helms Deep or Helms Gate, the, the, the Battle of the Five Armies and Lord of the Rings, like shit is bad. It is dark and it is uncertain. You know, it is, it is the last shot of Luke, you know, pushing the photon down the exhaust tube of the Death Star. Like it gets to that. And it's a 49.51 nail biter in overtime. And so that, A, what other story would we rather have come awake in? And B, it's so close that every single calorie from all of us is required to get us there. So even if we know that it ends in celebration, we are required at full strength. And if we practice resurrection, if we practice dying, and that's what ecstasis is, right? Every ecstatic experience is that moment of stepping beyond ourselves. And that moment, that ripping, that tearing from what I thought I was to what I might be is a death practice. And if we practice it often enough, we become initiated. That's what anthropos is. Anthropos is, I'm a dead man walking. Anthropos is, I'm no longer protecting the petty things. I'm looking for the opportunity to, to die to every moment in love, into the love, to be lived by love, and save myself and all others in that joyful sacrifice. So if we want to talk about what the fuck are we here for, and what is this transformational culture in service of, I mean, Burning Man is a giant stargate to transport ourselves into that remembering together and to practice what we must do together. And anything else is child's play and distraction. But if we can do that, we can unlock, it's, you know, Dr. King, man, soul force. It's the moment, it is, it, is, it is the moment of Spartacus. It's the moment of, I stand up to speak my truth, even though I know it means I'll be nailed up for it. I take that, you know, I'd, I'd rather be a free man in my grave than living as a puppet or a slave. And when we know that, you know, like when we all know that, and we all take to the streets and we all take to the farms, and we take to the schools, 
and we take to the graveyards and we take to the churches in that knowledge, then we have this shot. Like, that's it. That's all we're going to get. Best chance. We get a shot at being that guy in Tiananmen Square, right? Of being those folks on that bridge in Selma to say enough, you know, enough of hate and fear and control. And we take a stand for the world that we know in our heart, not, not out of whistling past the graveyard, not a hope because we read it someplace, but we know it in our bones, in our guts. And that's the last card we have to play. And if we get to, you know, Alice Walker, Roots Mama, you know, she just published a book of poems a few years ago, and it's got the most awesome title you can imagine. She said, Hard Times Call for Furious Dancing. Wow. Hard Times Call for Furious Dancing. Yeah. So let's do it. You know, let's walk each other home. And we're going to step on each other's toes. And it's going to be a long way, and the climb is steep, but fucking eight, man, let's do it. You're a poet, too. <laughs> you have a really um, amazingly poetic way of describing these difficult and provocative ideas. And I love the way, I love the way you associate different ideas and bring different thinkers in. It's been a real joy and quite arresting to listen to you here today. I have the benefit that I get to listen to this again before I even publish it. And then I will probably listen to it once more after that, just to try to absorb all of this. But I can tell you right now that I definitely want to do the wilderness EMT training. I feel like that. I mean, it's so, it's so amazing to have a podcast where we're talking about these ideas and to have such a solid takeaway because no one's ever brought that up to me. And, you know, I've done, I, I do a lot of immersions, but I haven't done that kind of thing. And I think that for the listener, and I'll tell you right now, listener, I'm going to do it. So, you know, if you, if you, if it's now it's a cool thing, right? Um, uh, Jamie, thank you so much for coming here and sharing your wisdom and, answering all of my questions today. It's really been an honor to listen to your thought and I feel elevated by it. Thank you. Yeah, man. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Life is a Festival. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support it by sharing it with your friends and leaving a review on iTunes, letting us know what you thought. If you'd like to keep up with me, you can visit my website, aimandarmstrong.com. That's E-A-M-O-N armstrong.com or Eamon Armstrong on your favorite social platforms. Thanks for tuning in. Together, we can make life a festival for everyone. See you on the dance floor. Okay, so we have this thing at the end of the podcast because every time I'm done recording a podcast, I put the mic down and I ask someone how it went and then we have a really great conversation about whether we accomplished our home run. So I wanted to ask on the record, how the podcast go. And, um, Julie, if you're interested, since you've been here for the whole time and you haven't been within it, um, if you wanted to share as well, um, I can give you my mic. Um, I think the podcast went went well. I enjoyed listening to the conversation. So that to me is a good podcast. (laughs) (laughs) It didn't seem like there are any, um, woolly tales or tangents that went too far, you know, out of, the scope of the conversation. So, um, it was a joy to listen to. Yeah. Good questions. Thoughtful answers. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I guess I always think of it sort of almost musically, 
you know? And like, did we get into the pocket? Like, did we get into a good groove where the ideas built and the themes were expressed and concluded in a satisfying way uh, before adding or layering in others? And, and that felt, that felt good. Like that we, you know, we were kind of obviously any freewheeling conversation, maybe have some things that sort of get started and unexplored or then come. And I felt like we came back to most because I'm always thinking for, for, for a listener like, is this just like random paint against a wall or does it actually make a picture that's but helpful? The com- the com- I actually, I like when you, when you go away and then part of my job is to, to remember and try to bring it back because that's mm-hmm. almost like coming back to the refrain mm-hmm. when you're listening to a song, as you're yeah. saying. So if you're listening and you're like, oh, but who's going to list the five points? We're on two and now we're over mm-hmm. here. Oh, but we're coming back to the five points. Oh, and that was the thing. And that's why we, you know, I find yeah. that, that the going away and coming back is almost better than never having gone in the first place. Oh, 100%, 100%. And then sometimes, and I've noticed this lately, we actually, and I, I think it probably makes sense, but with people that I normally have some of the most inspired freewheeling conversations with off mic have been actually herky-jerky on mic. And, and it was just always baffling because I'm like, oh, no, we always jam, you know. So I appreciate um, your, you know, your active listening. Well, this is our first conversation. And yeah. I have real questions for you. <laughs> this isn't just because I'm doing a podcast. I, I was yeah. listening to you last night and I was like, God, I need... I, I, your is the future thing is podcast. They do a great podcast. I've heard a couple of Daniel Schmachtenberg has been on there. Um, and you were pointing out this post Burning Man neo hippie, and I was like, oh my god, that's me. And you're like talking about Bali and Tulum and Ibiza, and I was like, oh, I've gone to all those places, and I thought it was so cool when I did. You know, like I was, I was really listening to it as me. And of course, my question is, okay, like I agree with you. Like we mm-hmm. need to get out of these hedonistic loops, especially now. So. Mm-hmm. The fact that literally the next day through our mutual friend, Jason Silva, I have you in my living room to actually ask you this. Mm-hmm. So as far as the active listening is concerned, it's like, yeah, I just want to know. So, mm-hmm. so, yeah. so it's helpful. Yeah, know? I mean, and I think, I think this, this is probably the simplest way to describe it in, in a way that is uh, valorizing, like uplifting versus just critique, you know, is, is engage death practices. Like, do not pass go. Don't let anything else take precedent over that. And so death practices can look like, right? Um, And the more embodied they are, the better. So getting out in nature, getting out, exposing yourself to big elements that can kill you, right? And that doesn't mean like adrenaline junkie risk-taking. It means humility and apprenticeship to oceans, mountains, rivers, rocks, right? And to say nothing of like the benefit of the natural sublime that you get from that. Uh, the wilderness medicine is another death practice. You actually learn how fragile and you know changeable we are. And then with the stewardship to be responsible for yourself and others. So your situational awareness of any scene that you're in goes through the roof, right? Martial arts is another highly engaged death practice. Now it might be, I simply don't want to feel acute or intense pain, right? But that is, that is a focuser and a grounder and an embodier. Even permaculture and farming is a death practice, midwifery, are death practices because they are life practices, right? And you, you don't know until you have to slaughter an animal or until you see a crop fail or deliver a baby and it's a breech birth, right? I mean, these things put us close to the sharp end of life where transformational festivals can be anything we fucking say it is and pretend it is. And so that would be my strongest advice is, is in, in, on route to the practice of resurrection, 
of, of being able to die every moment. Can you think about like Tibetan Buddhism, like the whole arc of Tibetan Buddhism is I dedicate 40 years plus so that on the, uh, on the hope that at the moment of physical death, I can transcend the bodhis and step off the wheel of karma. And you're like, that is a lot of sunk cost for one bite of the apple, right? Versus can we practice dying every day in every moment to my preferences, my pain, my pleasure, my stories, to all of it, good and bad, just to be in full service and full attention to that moment. And so those death practices, that's the best one. And it's, and it's awesome because the paradox is the more, the more death we practice, the more alive we become. 